If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're working with Acts chapter 7, verses 44 down to 8, 1. But to begin our time, we'll read verses 44 to 50. So we are finishing Stephen's address. And this will actually be the last, uh, last set of passages for the book of Acts for this year. The next week, we'll do our annual biographical sketch considering the life of Martin Luther, some things we can sort of glean from his life, and then we'll actually take us then into the season of Advent, surprisingly. And we'll have some services, sermons devoted to the incarnation of Christ, the purpose of Christ coming into the world, and glorying in that wonderful message. So if you're there, Acts chapter 7 beginning in verse 44. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was unto the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we offer up to you another prayer. Lord, we are your precious people. We are your possession. And you have called us to gather here this morning and so we ask Lord that you would look down on us and favor us and make your face shine upon us as we give attention to your word Lord may I proclaim it and may your people receive it as your divinely inspired word just as you spoke to Moses on the cloud at Mount Sinai there at the top of the mountain. Lord, so you also meet with us this morning, intending to speak to us through your word. And so we pray, speak, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was an unnamed Canadian soldier who made this impossible and legendary shot, seeing his target over 3,700 yards away, about 2.14 miles. He saw his target aimed and shot, and he hit his target with a round traveling over 10 seconds in the air. Long before that, legendary shot, there was another unnamed soldier who also made this impossible shot. This was a man, a soldier in the midst of battle with a bow and arrow, and at random he lets the arrow fly, and he hit a most important target, and that target was none other than the coward King Ahab, who was in battle, dressed as a common soldier so that he would not be discovered to be King Ahab. As we've been considering Stephen's address in Acts chapter 7, this entire time he's been crafting something with his hands. And we come to the conclusion of his speech, and it turns out that he was, he's been crafting this entire time as a bow and arrow. But he does not need the marksmanship of this unnamed Canadian soldier to hit his targets, nor does he need to let the arrow fly at random with the hopes that God might guide it to its intended target, because his target is standing right in front of him. He's staring at them in the face. So how does he go crafting his bow and arrow and setting the right tension to the string 
so she can come to the conclusion of his sermon. There are some penetrating things that he has to say to the religious authorities. But there's also an amazing sight there that I want to draw your attention to. But first, let us consider God's abiding presence and promise resistant. So as a quick review, the religious crowds could not withstand the words and the wisdom with which Stephen was speaking and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then finally, looking to silence Stephen, they brought up some false charges, brought it before the religious council. And what were these charges? Number one, that Stephen seeks to replace the law of Moses. And secondly, that Stephen speaks against the temple. So how does Stephen address these charges? Well, he addresses the first charges when he brings to bear the story of Moses. From the first, from the very beginning, he's tracing the line of promise, beginning with Abraham, and then drawing it then to the person of Moses. And he has some very good things to share about Moses. He speaks very highly of Moses. And in that way, he's addressing that first charge. Moses met with God. Moses received the law from God himself. And so he wasn't looking to replace the law of Moses. It was very highly upon Moses and the fact that the law of Moses was divinely inspired. And then we have the second charge that he seeks to speak against the temple. And that is where we get to verse 44 and he starts to address that false charge. And he says that even the tent itself, which would later become the temple, was God's idea. God first gave to Moses a pattern for the tent of witness, this perpetual witness that God was with his people. They were to take it with them into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And then later on, when David sought to build God a temple, it was his son who would then have the instruction, the command to build the temple for the Lord. This would always be a perpetual evidence that God is with his people. It would be the means by which they would offer up sacrifices to the Lord in atonement for their sins. This would be the place where they would receive instruction by the priests. And so it's not that Stephen is speaking against the temple, but he's speaking about the temple in a different way. Thanks to the coming of Jesus Christ. Thanks to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, quoting the prophets, that God has no need of a temple. God himself says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God has no need of a temple. He, pray, he has man create a temple for the sake of man. It's not that God needed it. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. When we consider the most important things in a house, at the very bottom of the list would probably be a footstool. Footstool is an accessory to a house. It's not an important item in the house. He's getting this idea and this understanding of the temple because of what Jesus has done and what Jesus himself had said. For example, in John 4, 21, as Jesus is speaking with the Samaritan woman, he says to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in the temple in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It is not that God's people are not able to worship God anywhere, but it is that God's people will be able to worship God anywhere. As long as they do so in spirit and truth, there will be no longer any need to go to a specific place or to a particular building to worship the Lord. His people will be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. That is not to sort of look down or disfavorably upon the gathered church. The gathered church is a group of believers indwelt by the Spirit of God who come together 
in spirit and truth to worship the living God because we are commanded to do so according to Hebrews 13. But the fact that the Spirit of God resides in man allows every man and woman of God to worship the Lord whatever they're doing and wherever they are. Worship everywhere is now possible, but not because God has decided to make the footstool now his home. It is because God has now decided to impart his holy and living spirit in those in whom he has redeemed. Hence why 1 Corinthians says that you and I have become the temple of the living God because the spirit of God resides in us so that wherever the people of God are, there are these sort of these small temples where the worship of God is happening. And so in this way, there is this perpetual witness of the abiding presence of the Lord. So moving on from that, then Stephen has some pretty, pretty sharp words to say to his audience. Stephen is no blind man. He does not need either to be a marksmanship. He knows exactly what his target is, and he aims to shoot his arrow directly at his target. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This entire time he's been pulling on this thread of promise, The original promise made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations will be blessed, tracing that seed time and time again, taking it through Moses, or to Joseph, then to Moses. But at the same time, he's also pulling on a different thread, and that is the thread of rejection, the thread of opposition. And he says that this thread, he says to his audience, this is you. You belong to this thread. He says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, You're just like your fathers. Every time that God sent a prophet to turn your hearts back to him, to stop you from opposing the thread of promise, you rejected the prophets. You even went so far as to murdering the prophets. You even went so far as to murdering, betraying the prophet of prophets, the Son of God, the Righteous One. And so he goes on to say, essentially, the reason why you're after me in this moment the reason why you're so against me is because you're just like your fathers. That's why. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He goes on to conclude, you who received the law as delivered by angels, It did not keep it. In other words, it's not that I'm speaking against the law of Moses. It's not that I'm looking to replace the law of Moses. In fact, I have a very high view of the law of Moses. It's you who has a very little view of the law of Moses because you don't even keep it. Probably the last thing that you want to say to this people says they're stiff-necked. They're set in their ways. They're stuck. They're rigid. They're, They're stubborn. They will not move. They will not bend. They will not bow the heads to the Lord. Proverbs 29.1 says this, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Agonizingly kind of pictures of a, someone with a broken neck. It's like a, a stick. right? Like a dried out stick. Not a wet stick that's easily bendable, but a dried out stick. A stick that's no longer attached to the tree. It's not going to bend, it just snaps. He says, that's what you're like. He engages this religious crowd. 
He says you're uncircumcised in heart. In other words, he says you're pagans. <laughs> you're not actually worshiping the Lord. You're worshiping yourselves. Your senses are dull to divine admonition. You who consider yourself nearest to God because you're there at the temple day in and day out are actually the furthest. So near yet so far. Your ears are so full of wax of sin that you cannot receive and hear the word of God. Your hearts are so full of sin that there is no room for Christ Jesus. In your heart of hearts, you're just like your fathers. In your heart of hearts, you're still in Egypt. You've never left. By the way, I love Stephen's Trinitarianism. He says, at this time, he's spoken about God. And then he's pointed to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then he says, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Here's Stephen. As we know from his introduction earlier in Acts chapter 6, this man was full of wisdom, full of the Spirit of God. At this point, he knew and understood the Scriptures. And thanks to the New Testament, thanks to Jesus Christ, we have a better picture and understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament. He was certainly there. And Stephen understood this and he knew this. And he was saying this entire time, as God sent prophets, as God gave you tangible signs, evidence of his reality, as God has shown you favor time and time again, you rejected At the same time, you were rejecting the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just any kind of rejection. This was a Trinitarian kind of rejection. So as we consider these things, there's a fighting against the knowledge of the truth. There's this natural resistance to truth, to the reality, the presence of God and His Messiah. And so we pray that man may understand the grace of God and man may believe in the grace of God. Right? That is my prayer right, for those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is, this is this, this is tenet of the Christian faith, this is doctrine in Reformed theology called irresistible grace. That is, that when God removes the blinders from one's eyes and they are able to see the grace of God that they can cannot resist. They cannot help themselves but go and run to Christ Jesus. It is like a man stranded in the desert, not having any water or food for days, and then finally coming to an oasis. Right? It would be foolish for the man to say, eh, I don't want it. Right? He's not going to do that. He's going to see the oasis. He's going to immediately run to the oasis. It is not that his decision-making factors have been overwritten, it is that he is so desperate and he cannot help himself and he then chooses to immediately run to the oasis. That is what irresistible grace is like. And I pray and hope that you might understand the irresistible grace of God, the grace that is there for you today. And I pray and hope that you yourself will pray that God may help you to see the grace of God so that you may Run to that grace and receive the forgiveness of your sins and receive pardon for all your transgressions and receive eternal life in Christ Jesus. But even for saints, for believers, for those who have, of us who have already made the initial surrender to Christ Jesus and surrendering our lives to follow Him, even yet, there are moments that we can still resist. Resist the work of God and resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's some examples about correction. I can't count how many times my own wife has come to me, the word of correction that I needed, and in my own heart and in my flesh, there's just this natural resistance where I don't want to receive it. Have you ever been there? Someone offers a correction and you know they're right. 
but it's just something in you that naturally just resists and doesn't want to receive it. Or how about apologizing or taking blame for something that you know you took part in? It can be hard for us to get to a place where we can be humble, resist our natural pride, and be able to say, I'm sorry. Or how about not sharing the gospel because you don't want to risk offending someone? You have that moment, you're engaged in conversation, and conversation just sort of lends itself to a natural way of making some kind of comment or some kind of statement with regards to what you believe or what you hold to be true or who you are in Christ Jesus, but there's a resistance in you because saying what you think you ought to say or want to say or need to say might offend the other person. Or how about the Word and its application? In your own personal study of the Word, or take, for instance, on a Sunday morning, and you hear the Word of God, and you know the Lord is speaking to you directly and pierces you with His Word, and you know that the Lord is calling you to do something or stop doing something or change something, and then you go home and you resist. For some, it's the neglect of the fellowship of the saints. You resist the work of the Holy Spirit when you do not meet with God's people like you should. And in that way, resisting the work of the Spirit and not receiving divine grace. Resisting sanctification, personal holiness. Here's another one. Refusing gospel comforts and promises. When you're in a season of deep distress or perhaps suffering, and rather than pursuing gospel promises, gospel comforts in the divinely inspired word as a medicinal herb for your stress, and suffering and affliction. Instead, you seek to medicate yourself with distractions, whether it's media or something else, something that you'll get you to take to get you to think about something and anything else. You're resisting the Holy Spirit, who is called the Helper and the Comforter. We need to be aware of the danger of resisting. The Bible tells us that there is a category for having a calloused heart and a seared conscience. No one has a seared conscience overnight. You don't just simply wake up overnight and have a seared conscience. No. This, has is, this is, comes from a pattern of resisting time and time and time and time again. It's like a pond in the middle of winter. Over time, it begins to develop a, an icy film on the surface and left alone, that icy film is going to harden. It's going to get thicker. It's going to become so thick that kids can play hockey in the middle of the pond without ever cracking and no one falling through. This is what the seared conscience is like. It begins like an icy film at the very beginning, but we keep resisting long enough, it begins to harden and develop this icy, thick crust. So what we need to do is continue to stir the waters of your conscience by walking by the Spirit, by maintaining those regular rhythms of the means of grace, pursuit of the Word, pursuit of God through prayer and come to the warm fireplace of God's meeting with the saints and Sunday morning services. Secondly, let us consider Stephen's vision. 
And so here we come to the final moment of Stephen's life. We have such a short story of Stephen. His introduction began in chapter 6, and now we already come to the end of his life at the end of chapter 7. And we see here, after he has some very choice and penetrating words towards his audience, it says that they are enraged. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And they seized him, and they took him out out of the city to stone him. And it's quite striking that in these final moments, as there is this mist of rage, that Stephen is given a vision. It's like the curtains of the heavens are open, and he's able to see something behind the curtains, and he sees the glory of God, it says. The glory of God, he sees the Son, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God. Stephen did not need a temple to see this vision. He was already full of the Holy Spirit of God. And Stephen is now in a small minority in the Scriptures who have this incredible vision. Moses is one of those met with God. It says in Exodus that God met with him as a man meets face to face. Chew on that for a while. He saw, he desired to see the glory of God. He saw some semblance of the glory of God. Isaiah is another one who has received a vision of the Lord, robed in majesty. And here we see Stephen. Oh, for what a, I would just cut off my arm just to be able to get a little bit more details about what did this look like? Can you describe what this looked like? as you beheld the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. It's an invitation. When God reveals his glory to these saints, it's an invitation. It is an expression of intimacy. And I put this vision to you, I put this forward to you because this is, or this should be the desire of every Christian to want to see the glory of God in Christ. To see it, to behold it. 1 John 3, verse 2, it says there, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He has appeared, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. This passage and many others is what's is the reason why we have this idea of what's called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is the transformational vision. It is the vision that changes. It is the cha- it is the vision that brings one to a perpetual state of rest. It is the vision that fills one with an eternal joy. It's a vision that beholds Christ Jesus. And at the moment of beholding Him, they become as He is. Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They shall see God. It's pointing to the beatific vision. It's not that He, the Father, who is invisible and has no form, will then put on a form. Right, for that, we have Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who in his person perfectly personifies who the Father is, so that looking at Jesus is to look at the Father. But this is a very different kind of seeing. If you can imagine with me, this is like someone playing an instrument and being able to see what they're playing. I'm not talking about seeing their fingers playing the different notes. That's not what I'm talking about. Imagine, if you will, if every note you could actually see. Every note gave off a particular color. Gave off this dazzling beauty so that the music that is played on the instrument 
you can actually see that music with your own eyes. And it is a glorious sight, and it is a beautiful sight filled with many vivid colors and vibrant colors creating this wonderful something that's indescribable. Whatever this vision, this beatific vision of Christ is, it is something I'm sure we have no words for in human language. I'm sure it is something that you cannot even compare it to. And this is the vision that God has for us, and this is the vision that we should desire to see. One last thing I want to point you to, a peculiar detail with regards to this vision. It says that this vision was of the glory of God and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now in the New Testament, when it speaks of Jesus being at the right hand of God, Jesus is always seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God pointing to his eternal session, pointing to the fact that the work is done, is completed. There's nothing more to do. But in this vision, Stephen sees the risen and ascended Lord standing at the right hand of God. It is the only place in the Scriptures where we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's hard to figure out exactly what this could mean. But I think of, so, later on, we see that Saul was there receiving the utter garments of those who were going off to stone Stephen, and he gave an approval. His being there was an approval of Stephen's execution. The Apostle Paul, when he's afterwards, after he's converted, Speaking of this event, it says in Acts 22.20, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I'm not making a direct connection between what Paul says there and the standing of Christ at the right hand of God, but I think it could help us to understand, at least, what might be going on. Honestly, I take it as Jesus standing as a sign of his approval, receiving what Stephen has done. It's a way of his saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And I could imagine the heavenly hosts, scriptures tell us that the angelic hosts watch us, they behold us, They're interested in the doings of Christ's precious saints here in this life. I would imagine that even the heavenly hosts were standing with Christ Jesus and also being in awe and giving an approval to this man's words and his faithfulness even to the bitter end. Regardless of what it might mean, This is quite a significant detail that in his final moments he's receiving this vision. A semblance of the beatific vision. Stephen has been pointing out different these contrasts showing who his audience is like and where he stands. And the fact that he sees something that they don't see shows another contrast. In John chapter 9, when Jesus healed the man born blind, the religious authorities did not receive it. They denied it. They rejected it. Even when they brought in witnesses and they interrogated them, is this the man who was actually born blind? Is this the man that you've come to know who's blind? And yes, that is him. That's him. He sees now. I don't know how. They bring in his parents and interrogate them. Is this your son who was born blind? Yes, that is our son. He was born blind, and now he sees. We have no idea why. You ask him. They go back. Tell us. 
how did you receive your sight? And he says, I already told you. <laughs> this man healed me. Right, do you want to believe in him as well? They are ignoring the tangible evidence. They are refusing to see. And to this, Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, you cannot receive sight as long as you cannot admit that you are blind. And this is message of the gospel. You cannot receive divine forgiveness if you cannot admit that you need divine forgiveness in the first place. You cannot admit that you need a doctor if you don't first recognize that you're in need of healing. This is the kind of blindness that sees everything but eternal realities. It is like learning to read. Without the skills and understanding of reading, letters are just letters. They're undecipherable. They're confusing. They don't make sense. You know, they're trying to communicate something, but you don't know what they're intending to communicate. And you might get some things right here and there, but overall, it's just confusing. But faith is like learning to read. And this is skill that's developed over time. Now you're beginning to understand the words. Now they're beginning to make sense. Now you're beginning to make connections. Now you're understanding what the intent of the message is. The Bible says in the Psalms that all of creation is like a book that declares the glory of God. Faith is being able to open the book of creation and be able to read it and understand it and see that it is pointing to something greater. But without that faith, creation and the tangible evidences of the reality of God and His Son is just confusion, it's just a mess, and man is only left to interpret it by his own understanding, by which he will never arrive at the truth. Hence why we must continue to be proclaimers of the truth and helping people, the world, to understand and see that there is a God and that man needs to be saved. Stephen sees something that they cannot. Even in the response, this is stark contrast. The response of the crowds is that they became enraged, but in contrast, Stephen was still full of the Holy Spirit. They came at him, they seized him, they rushed him out, they began to stone him. And then it says, as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. The falling to his knees implies that in the midst of his being stoned, he's getting on his knees, not to plead for mercy but to pray to the Lord and even pray on the behalf of his persecutors. Just as the crowds are crying out against Stephen, Stephen on his knees is crying out to the Lord. We see from his intro to his conclusion that this man was indeed full of the Spirit of God. And in this way, in his most dire hour, we see the kind of man he was, that he was like. The crucibles of life oftentimes have a revealing power in the sense that they tell us what we're like, even down to our very last breath. And so what does this reveal about Stephen? It reveals that there was a powerful Christ-likeness about Stephen. He prays for them with his last breath. And so Christians, just as his Savior prayed for his persecutors as he was hung on the cross. So Stephen prays for his persecutors, and so we are commanded to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And we do this not only because we are commanded to do so, but because we understand more than any that we were once enemies of Christ. And we should understand more, most of all, or more than most, 
that man is blind, and that he does not know that he is blind, and to some sense should be pitied. Stephen went out praying, and he leaves us an example worth considering. We can't always control our situations. We can't control people's responses. What we can control is ourselves. What we can control is our response. Men and women full of the Holy Spirit of God, they pray. They pray in every situation. They pray in every circumstance. They pray in every negative response. They, they pray. Praying itself is a response. When I think of the great last day, the great day of judgment, when the Lord will call all men to himself and give an account of their lives, including the saints, I picture a great number of saints who have many scars upon their bodies because of the sufferings and the persecutions that they had endured in their life for the name of Christ Jesus. I picture many Christians with sort of these, these drooping hands because they have spent many years of their lives with those hands elevated, worshiping and praising their great God and Savior. I picture many Christians with these calloused knees because they have devoted hours upon hours upon hours of their lives on their knees praying to God in any and every circumstance. The Bible warns us that there is a great enemy of the Christian, that he seeks to devour us. And so why we pray not, we are called to pray for our persecutors, but we are not commanded to pray for him. Praise God, I don't want to pray for the devil. If anything, I want to pray for his destruction. And we're called to resist Him. Not the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we resist the work of the Spirit, we might actually be giving in to the devil's work. But we're called to walk by the Spirit and resist the devil and he will flee from us. We have an enemy who is after us and he fits his arrows to the strings and he aims his arrows at, God's, at Christ's precious saints. And he does this in part because he understands the Christian's worth better than the rest of the world. To the world, the Christian is like a, a piece, a piece of, like a plate of metal. In appearance it's marked by affliction. It's marked by suffering. It's got some scuff marks here and there. It doesn't look like it's worth anything, but if you put that thing on the scale, you'll see the weight of it showing its worth. If you melt that metal, right, all the marks, all the dross will go away, and what you'll see is the purity of the metal. Christian's life is worth something because it is saturated by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Matthew 6.25 points to this preciousness of the dear saints. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not a more value than they? The answer is yes, you are. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. It's a challenge there to believe, to trust, have faith. And what is the ground of this assurance that you have in Christ Jesus? It's your worth. It's the fact that you are precious in the sight of God. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from anything we did or didn't do. Our worth comes from the one who died for us, who then clothes us with his robe of righteousness. So then if we are robed with the righteousness of Christ Jesus, then let us not go into the world dressed incognito. Let us not put something over the robe of righteousness to cover up this righteousness. Let us not be ashamed of who we are in Christ Jesus. No matter what the situations bring, no matter what the response might be, let us go out into the world with boldness and courage, wearing this robe unashamedly. For it has come to us at such a great cost. Hebrews 10 offers this encouragement. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I see a kind of condition there in that last part in verse 23. The condition is, if you hold fast to your confession without wavering, then he who promised is faithful. That he will be faithful to you. If you hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering, So whether you should be in a season of emotional agony and distress, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If you are in a season of affliction, hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If you find yourself in a season of plenty, in a season of peace, you also hold fast your confession of hope without wavering. If you're in a season where you're finding yourself resisting the work of the Spirit, you find yourself in a season of great temptation, receiving a barrage of the enemy's arrows, hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us be like Elijah. Though he said this in a way of lament as he ran for his life from a king who sought to kill him. He said to the Lord, Lord, I alone am left and I seek my life. How did he find himself in that kind of position? Because he held fast the Lord without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. No matter what seasons we find ourselves in, no matter what the world's response is to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us hold fast because he who promised is faithful. We conclude with this word in Hebrews 4.14 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the short story of your saint and servant, Stephen, we see so clearly that you are the God who is faithful. We see that even in this most terrible of situations, you remain faithful to the end. But this faithfulness, he certainly did not conjure up on his own. But Lord, you sustain the work of your hands. You have promised to never forsake the work of your hands. And we see that in this precious life, as we read it in the book of Acts, Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to hold fast the confession of our precious gospel that comes to us through Jesus Christ? Lord, let us not give up, even when we are weary, even when we are exhausted and every fiber in our being is screaming at us to give up. Help us through the strength of your Holy Spirit and the grace that you renew to us each day to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. Sustain us and keep us, O Lord. Help us to not resist your work, but willingly surrender ourselves to the work of your Spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.